You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. I'm back to let you know I can really shake them down. No, no, now no, 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 no. Tony, Tony, we're not starting with you singing. We've had three good weeks of no singing. So uh, uh, no, stop. Because <laughs> the last line of that says, do you love me? And the answer yeah. to that, I guess, is no. Is a definitive no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, be like that then. But I am back, and it is episode 128 of your favourite sports podcast, Null and Void. As ever tonight, we have all the best sports stories from World Cup cricket final, controversial happenings from football's Premier League, and indeed from Rugby Union, whose future structure is under real threat. We look at an ultra marathon cheat. Also, we have a look at my trip to Oz from a sports perspective and maybe something about the food for you, Andy. Hey. Yeah. Okay. So I got back at 5 a.m. at Heathrow on Friday morning, which was something of a shock to the system because <laughs> it was three, three degrees, um, having left 30 degrees of heat. Uh, at Perth. Uh, but we're back. And most of that time, obviously, I tried to get some kip and catch up. But I did watch um, uh, the cricket and some uh, WSL football. A busy weekend for that. How about you? Uh, yeah, weekend of watching the cricket, uh, the rugby and the American football, as well as a bit of golf from Dubai. Um, that was going around. Some of the shots showed some of my old haunts in the background. Um, as well as visiting a well-known Swedish furniture retailer um, on the outskirts of Reading in search of new bookcases. So, uh, oh, right. Okay. I, I got tricked into it by my mum. She decided we were going off to well-known Swedish retailer. Um, I, I think the offer of meatballs uh, was, was uh, what swung it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it didn't sound like you, bookcases. What? What? Anyway, okay, good. So we're back into it, and we really do do have to start with cricket, don't we? I mean, Australia are World Cup uh, champions again after defeating host India in the World Cup final. And that was on Sunday, and it was by six wickets. In truth, and this is my opinion, it was quite one-sided affair. Didn't expect it. This coming swiftly on my production prediction that India would win. Indeed, I even said Australia would be knocked out by South Africa in the semi-final. So whatever you do, don't listen to me. What were your <laughs> thoughts? On, what were your yeah. thoughts on Sunday? Well, you kept up the strong tradition uh, that we have on Null and Void of yeah. uh, predicting completely the opposite result. So uh, I thought it was a good final. Um, hats off to Australia. Well-deserved winners. You know, India had been the only team to be unbeaten going into the final. So I think, you know, and they prepared a low, slow wicket to suit themselves, which home court advantage, why wouldn't you? Um, but I, I think, I, I actually think the momentum swung both ways a bit more than you did. I know you said it was very one-sided, but if you think about it, you know, Australia reduced India to 81 for three early doors, but then Kohli and Rahul um, steadied the ship after Rohit was out to an amazing catch by Travis Head, that he had no right getting that. Um, 
But then in the second half of the innings, India just lost wickets regularly um, and consistently. And I always thought, like I know you said you did, uh, their 240 score looked not probably... Enough, not enough. I thought it was about 80 or 90 runs light on that yeah. pitch. But then Australia's innings started really badly. Um, you know, they slipped to 47 for three. So at that point, it looked like being game on. But then that man, Travis Head, again, stuck in there. And what was it, 137 he put on off 120 balls? Yeah. Um, and, and that in a partnership with Manus Labashane that was worth 194. And that took them right to the cusp of the title. I think uh, what, um, Head was out with two runs required. Um, and then Glenn Maxwell came in after his heroics earlier in the tournament, the 200 that won the game for Australia and uh, smashed the, the winning runs um, boundary to win it. So Australia take the title, well-deserved. I think it, it's it's felt like a bit of a marathon and an endurance event following this World Cup. I think one of the things they need to look at in the future is how do they keep it tighter? And, I mean, it's gone over, what, seven, eight weeks, and it's just felt it's a, like it's a, a long, long time, time to sustain interest. I mean, it is interesting because you're doing the round-robin games and so on. But I just think from a crowd's point of view and everything else, that's a very, very long time. We've obviously, we've reported prior to it and every week during it and does seem a long time. I've been to Australia and come back, you know, it's only just finished. So yeah. uh, I, I think you could have probably got a boat there and come back uh, yeah. with the length of time the World Cup. So, but yeah, Australia's sixth World Cup, that's more than anyone else. And remember earlier on in the summer, they were also crowned World Test Champions at yeah. Lords after again beating India. Um, and they were T20 World Cup winners as recently as 2021. Now, England won it last winter, um, but I think Australia certainly looked odds-on favourites. In fact, when I look today, they are odds-on favourites to retain the title back from England um, in next summer's tournament in the USA. So, yeah, definitely sitting very much at the top of the mountain at the moment. Yeah. Okay, uh, football. And it was a big weekend for the Women's uh, Super League. Chelsea continue to dominate, thrashing Liverpool 5-1 and have now on eight, 19 points at the top. Arsenal, after a 3-0 win at Brighton, goes second on 16. And interestingly within that, Beth Mead continuing her recovery from the ACL injury. So that's really good to mm. see. City go third on 13 after beating Manchester United at Old Trafford in front of a record crowd of 45,000. I watched a good deal of that. And to be honest, you have to be honest about it, City were by far the best team. And it showed the experience they've got against United, who are relatively latecomers to the WSL setup. But uh, yeah, uh, onwards from there, it was a weekend of international break for the qualification for the Euros, that both England and Scotland, before the two final games that had been played, uh, had already qualified. In some ways, that's a good thing, but very often what happens is teams don't play up to spec when they already know they're there. England, you could definitely say that, in the 2-0 defeat of Malta, pretty turgid affair. And last night, drew with North Macedonia. Again, a performance that will not be remembered for too long, other than how inept 
the referee was. Scotland drew their two remaining games, two all with Georgia and three all with Norway. Meanwhile, Wales are actually playing tonight against leaders Turkey and have only a real outside choice, uh, a chance of qualification. So they have to win. No arguments about it. And even then, probably won't qualify. Uh, Northern Ireland's young team finished with a good win over Denmark, but didn't qualify. OK, so Premier League football next. As I said, there wasn't any, but there was big news. And Yeah, just a little bit. But um, the Premier League announced an immediate 10-point deduction on Everton for breach of their financial fair play regulations, which limits losses to 105 million over any three year period. Everton had losses of over 300 million, which were mitigated down through discussion, negotiation, call it what you will, up to 124, but that still left them in breach. Two clubs, Burnley and Leeds, had asked the Premier League to investigate the situation. Everton has said they will appeal, but equally, a number of clubs have said if the charges are ratified, they will sue Everton for losses incurred through relegation. So it's a real mess already. I decided I would ask a lifelong Everton supporter how he felt about it. Didn't expect him to be pleased, and he wasn't. <laughs> David Vick uh, was, when I first met him through my radio work, the deputy head of the Radio Authority at that time, but also I knew was a big football fan, lifelong Evertonian. Uh, he said, frankly, all Everton fans, myself included, are just sick and tired of the double standards applied by the Premier League. Manchester City have 115 violations of its financial fair play regulations, with no sanction so far. Whilst Everton with one unspecified violation, get a 10-point deduction. David goes on to say the Premier League is trying to stave off the government's stated intention to appoint a football regulator by acting tough and victimising, well, who else? Everton. This is David speaking, obviously. Um, they, pick up, they pick on a club that had a dying chairman, three to five directors resigned, they couldn't find a more vulnerable target, could they? David said, I'm happy to quote me on any of this, and said, finally, the greatest Everton team he had seen in his time as an Everton supporter was denied European involvement after the actions of Liverpool supporters meant there was a one-year European ban on English teams. So the unfairness, he feels, goes back a very long way. So... That's an Everton supporter's point of view. You don't expect him to be pleased. But that, as I said, that said, Everton did breach the regulations despite warnings. And apparently, you know, the, the Premier League were saying, warn them about being reckless. They carried on. And they did. You know, David thinks the reasons are very uh, harsh. They're harshly dealt with. But the problem for many people, aside from Everton's situation, is that of Manchester City. He touched on it with 115 breaches. So what punishment should they receive? With many people saying it could be years before a decision on that is made with the delaying tactics 
of the very expensive, I'm sure, lawyers of Manchester City. Should they be relegated? Question. It's really a minefield, and regardless of which club scarf you wear, it's not going to go away. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm not going to make any comment about uh, a scouser complaining about being hard done by um, and and that it's not fair and they're picking on us. I would never make that comment about anyone from the area of Liverpool. Um, you're right, Everton were in breach. Um, but I think, you know, one of the ones that really didn't help their case was their ridiculous efforts to claim a 10 million rebate or allowance in mitigation for not suing a former player, player X, that they dismissed after um, for breach of contract after he was suspended for two years during a police investigation. There were no further actions taken by the police, but Everton said the fact they hadn't dismissed him during that time and the fact they hadn't sued him for breach of contract meant that surely that was um, uh, an asset that they should be allowed to count in the ledger in their favour. 10 million quid. Sounds a bit desperate to me. That one does, clutching its straws. And the City one, I I agree to some extent with people saying, what about City? But on the flip side of that, you know, Everton, it was one charge. And that has taken from the point of the charge being lodged in March to now November, eight months, and apparently 40,000 documents just to get to this one charge. And they're being found guilty of that. One, one, one charge. Um, City are facing 115, and I will say guardedly, alleged breaches. And those alleged breaches cover five broad areas. Not providing for accurate financial information around revenue, sponsorship and operating costs. Between 2009 and 2018, Everton's was over a three to five year period. Cities is covering 14, 15 years. Also breaking rules, reporting manager payments. And it's alleged that they had two contracts paying one of their former managers. I don't know if legally if we're allowed to say which one, so I won't. But this, again, is a breach of the rules. Thirdly, breaking UEFA financial fair play regulations. And remember, City had a two-year ban from European competitions and a 30 million fine downgraded. So not proved not guilty, but downgraded to a 10 million fine by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So that one has been proved that they breached it. They've also accused of breaching the um, profit sustainability rules that the Premier League have in place and also deliberately preventing the process, including, as you mentioned, their lawyers have spent Mm -hmm. five years working to stymie the case. But also, whereas Everton eventually worked with the regulator and opened their books and everything. City, the allegations are that they haven't and have refused to engage in the process to the point where the latest is they've even, the lawyers are even challenging the legitimacy of the Premier League to investigate them. So basically they, as you said, they've got very expensive lawyers who will be making an absolute mint and putting their kids all through private schools on the back of these fees. But as a result, it means that City are able to draw this out longer. But we've also got to remember, eight months to prove one charge with 40,000 documents. So I dread to think how many trees will be killed in the process of 
creating the documents to support 115 charges. So there is a a difference there, and you can I can understand why it's taking so long. The money coming in now from these you know investors that have limitless pockets it's not even deep pockets it's limitless pockets to yeah. look at is the premier league going to be able to stand up to the sort of legal teams that these these organizations and these nations can put forward yeah as i said at the end of my piece uh, a minefield and clearly it's something we will talk more about uh, moving on to rugby union apart from the obvious results we can touch on uh there's big going on there as well, aren't there? Staying on the theme of financial fair play, let's talk about the results first. Um, yes. And a club that were, uh, remember, relegated from the Premiership to the Championship for a season for breaching rugby's version of fair play, which is the salary cap, uh, Saracens. They beat their London rivals, Harlequins, 38-10 at the weekend. Uh, and lo and behold, many of the players that were there on the books when Saris were breaching the salary cap, were still playing on Saturday. So either they've taken a very significant pay cut in the two, three years since, or Saris have found another off-the-books way of paying them. Now, you might say that that's coming from a bitter Quinns fan after Saris beat them 30-10. And you'd be right. I am. <laughs> Uh, but in other results, Sale top after a 40-22 win over bottom club Newcastle. And Bath followed up last weekend's win over West Country rivals Gloucester with another derby win, this time beating local rivals Bristol by just one point in a 2019 win. I think before we get into the bit you were alluding to with the other legal issues, um, the weekend also saw the launch of the new format to the women's top division. Uh, in England. So uh, we now have the was meant to be 10 teams, but Worcester withdrew with just weeks to go because they didn't feel they'd be able to sustain the costs. But Ealing Trailfinders and Leicester have joined the top clubs in what is now a nine team top division, which is called Premiership Women's Rugby. So it's been rebranded, real new, good feel to it. Um, season started with a win for Bristol where Abby Ward scored just four months after uh, giving birth. So she's been on mat leave uh, and coming back from that, um, scored in her first game back. Uh, Saracens beat Loughborough, Exeter beat Leicester, and Quinns left it very late to beat newcomers Ealing, um, but just scraped through in what was a really good game there. Uh, an update from Australia. Um, I know you've been out there and uh, been winding them all up by mentioning Eddie Jones at every turn. Well, the Rugby Australia chairman, Hamish McClellan, has been ousted after the board voted him out over his appointment of Eddie Jones. Um, apparently, the six member unions, which are the, the states, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, wrote an open letter to the board saying, we no longer have trust or faith in his leadership. That, that was, I think, the death knell for Hamish McLennan after the appointment of Eddie Jones and the farcical way that ended. Yeah, it was a mess. And uh, when I first went to Australia, Eddie Jones was the only name that people were coming up with. It. Not very happy about him at all. <laughs> anyway, so you mentioned head injuries in rugby. What, what's been going on there, Andy? Because it, that sounds horrendous. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's movement toward these legal cases. So there's a class action being launched, and you know that's a number of former professional players uh, in both the men's and women's game. Um, the family of Siobhan Catigan, who sadly passed away after um, sustaining head injuries playing for Scotland, um, and also a number of amateur players. It's difficult to understand what they aim to achieve with this legal case. It's interesting that the action has gone for the unions rather than the clubs, and certainly for the former professional players, I would have thought surely a duty of care was owned by the clubs as employers under Section 2 of the Health and Safety at Work Act, mm. um, that all employers have a duty of care to ensure that the work of their employees is safe. Maybe it's because the, the clubs have got no money. You know, at the moment, uh, April was the last sort of estimate that £200 million worth of debt was being carried by the 10 clubs that are still in existence in the Premiership. Yet RFU reports say that they're facing losses of between 30 and 40 million this year due to the World Cup costs and also the the two two to three fewer internationals at Twickenham as a result through the autumn. So I don't know. Um potentially if the class action wins their case I can see this being financial Armageddon for the professional games mm. and absolutely torpedoing it under the water in a way that it may not recover from. And also it's no better at the amateur level. Um, you know, if this action is won, will local sides then be forced to take out liability insurance at crippling costs and amounts? Cause let's face it, the insurers aren't going to sit there and go, well, you know, we'll give this to you at a decent rate. They're going to look at it and say, well, there could be liability here. We're going to hike up the costs and the premiums. Um, even when many of these local clubs are closing their doors due to dwindling numbers and uh, increasing unsustainable costs, these clubs don't have that revenue coming in. So I don't know. I, I can see and I understand that it is terrible for the people in these situations and nobody would wish that on anyone. And seeing the the documentary that was done about Steve Thompson, I think, you know, that is a very emotive piece. But at the same time, I just worry it's going to kill kill the game. We've already seen the changes to the laws have become an absolute, if you'll pardon my language, show in terms of decisions and games being influenced by sendings off in the second and third minute. I'm also, just from a legal perspective, really uncertain of the footing that they have. So they're claiming negligence, and it's the tort of, tort of negligence is the, the action being brought under. Well, there are four hurdles you have to clear to win a case of negligence in a court of law. The first one is... The defendant, who would be the unions who are being sued, owed the plaintiff a duty of care. Secondly, there was a breach of that duty of care. Thirdly, there's a damage caused by that breach. And fourthly, it's what's called proximity. So the damage wasn't too the damage caused wasn't too distant from yeah. the events that caused it. I, I don't know if they clear the first hurdle about a duty of care because with a duty of care the and also with the damage, it needs to be reasonably foreseeable 
by the defendant. Well, if we apply today's lens to 20, 30 years ago, yes, you could say it's reasonably foreseeable. But you have to go back 20 or 30 years and rewind the clock and say, given what they knew about head injuries, concussion, brain damage, um, CET or whatever this um, phrase is, the one that's been identified, was that reasonably foreseeable through the lens of in the 80s and 90s and the early noughties? Difficult. Was it reasonably foreseeable that players would bulk up, some legally, some not, um, and therefore be, you know, 120, 140 kilogram behemoths smashing each into other at speed? Again, difficult to say, was that reasonably foreseeable? Also, is there a an element of contributory negligence on the part of the plaintiffs? Could it be argued that they assumed the risk by going onto the field in the first place? Yeah. It, it, it's You mentioned minefield in the previous one. This is, again, as I say, nobody would wish on anyone the sort of brain injuries and the sort of things that have happened. But there is an element of looking and saying, well, you know, where was their fault? And if there was fault, where does that fault sit? I really struggle. And maybe it's because I'm looking at it with wanting to protect and sustain a game that I love um, and have loved for 30 plus years. I just, but from, you know, with my legal hat on, I struggle to see how they clear all four hurdles. Okay. I mean, between Premier League and Rugby Union, that's it's a bit depressing. So let's move on. Let's talk about another sport, shall we? I've got tennis next, and Djokovic is at it again. He beat uh, Yannick Sinner to win record seventh title. That was the ATP finals. Previously, he's won in 2008, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 22, and has now eclipsed the record of six titles he shared with Roger Federer. That's just going to keep happening, I think. Uh, following the 6-3-6-3 triumph over Yannick Sinner, Serb. Uh, the Serb said he, he wanted a golden slam in 2024. And what he means by that is winning that, but also getting a gold at the Olympics. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and so he's he is just, well, you could say looks unstoppable. Uh, you know, when other people are talking about retirement or have retired, he's a long way from it. And he just mm. loves winning. He's a great competitor. So, uh, yeah, so that will be interesting to see him at the uh, Paris Olympics as well. So plenty of activity on the NFL front. Yeah, I think the really big story from this weekend is the Philadelphia Eagles. They're season is running nine and one at the moment so nine wins and just one loss through the first 10 games of the season uh, which is a great start they're head and shoulders above everyone else in the different tables around the nfl um but this weekend they had to do it the hard way um against the kansas city chiefs who of course will some will remember they were the team that beat them in last season's super bowl back in february so uh, the Chiefs were 10 points clear at half time, um, but the Eagles pulled it back to just three points difference uh, coming into the final quarter. And actually, the Eagles kept a clean sheet in both the third and fourth quarters, 
uh, while scoring two touchdowns of their own to nick the game 21-17. And I think that really sets them up now for the, the last, what, three or four weeks, uh, sorry, five or six weeks of the regular season yeah. uh, before then heading into the playoffs and things like that. So, yeah, really dominant performance by them to beat the reigning Super Bowl champions after being that far down and watching the game at halftime. I think you looked at it and went, the Eagles are all over the shop. And then they just regrouped and put in a really, not so much a dominant attacking display, but such a good defensive display that just closed out that Kansas City Chiefs attack. So, yeah, they're looking really good at the moment. Sounds like it. Now, uh, we like to see the funny side of sport. You've got a crazy story on the golf front. <laughs> yeah. So it was the race to Dubai this weekend, which is always a hotly contested affair and uh, a really great sort of finale to the um, European season. Uh, but Yus Lighten, the South African player, um, it would be fair to say he wasn't having the best of rounds and he was getting a bit frustrated with his game. And as a result, he threw his driver after hitting a bad shot and it got stuck in a tree. Now, we've all lost things in trees before. And sometimes the logic is throw something up into the tree to knock the stuck item loose. (laughs) So Lighton, unfortunately, decided to throw another club up into the tree to try to dislodge his stuck driver. Cue two clubs stuck in the tree. (laughs) (laughs) So not one to learn from his mistakes. Lighton then had the bright idea of throwing a third club at the two that were already stuck to try and knock them out. (laughs) You know what was coming, don't you? Yeah. Lo and behold, he then set off back down the fairway after kicking his bag and swearing and having after that tried to use logs and you know the handheld scoreboards that the marshals carry up the fairway one of those to try and knock all three clubs that were stuck <laughs> out of the tree um none none of these options worked so he actually finished with 11 clubs rather than 14 in his bag and the clip that i've seen ends with him kicking the bag swearing repeatedly it's just on the video clip on the the news channel it was just beep 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 (laughs) (laughs) and off he stomps with his caddy having had the job made a little bit easier because he was three clubs lighter excellent stuff uh i haven't seen that video yet but i must um now ultramarathon cheat is the heading here uh null avoid has previously mentioned a number of marathon cheats who have uh, used unauthorized methods to get to the finishing line ahead of the rest of the field. One of them, one of them, Jesse Zakgoriski, has now been banned from the sport for taking a two and a half mile lift from a friend after she got a leg injury. And you're like, well, that's fair enough. But she actually got out after two and a half miles and ran the rest of the race and finished third and claimed her trophy. She's been banned now. This actually took place in this country uh, in the Liverpool Manchester Ultra Marathon. Jesse said, and I love this, when asked for a comment, said, 
we all make mistakes which we must live with. I reckon that's the understatement of the year, Jesse. Good luck yeah. with that one. Yeah. A mistake, <laughs> a mistake is picking up the wrong coffee at your local coffee shop. Well, uh, you know, standing on the podium knowing full well that you uh, didn't complete the race under your own steam. And the good thing is, a, a whole load of a whole load of the runners around her, of course, complained. They saw what happened. You yeah. know, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? But anyway, so uh, F1 and Las Vegas for the first time. Yeah, well, first time in 40 years. Yeah. So they spent 40 years waiting for Formula One to return to Nevada. And its return lasted just nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> when the practice on Friday was halted due to safety issues, when Ferrari's Carlos Saints hit a loose manhole cover. And it was then found that a number of these manhole covers on street circuits, apparently, they're then topped with a, yeah. a, a certain topping to make sure they can't damage the cars, hit the cars. And these toppings were loose. So, uh, yeah, they had to stop that. And then, to add to the fast, by the time that practice restarted in the second session, um, the stands had had to be emptied of all the fans who paid mega bucks to be there. Um, because the security hours are controlled by the unions and therefore all the security guards required to have the fans safely in the stands had all clocked out. So they had to <laughs> empty the stands as the last thing before they clocked out because as the unions had said, oh, sorry, Gov, union rules, got to knock off now, done our eight hours or whatever. So it just became farcical. Um, but actually, and and... I've got friends who were in Vegas for the weekend, not for the F1. Yeah. And they said every bridge that goes across the main strip between the two hotels, connecting hotels and connecting all the different sites and things, had been completely whited out. They'd put up big sheets of white paper on the glass of the bridges. And even where there was a tiny crack between the two sheets of paper that you might have just been able to peer through, they taped that up as well. The Bellagio and the famous iconic image that I think everyone thinks of with Las Vegas, mm. the fountains of the Bellagio, you couldn't see them from the strip because they'd all been boarded up with the construction and where, I think it was where the pit lanes were. So it was just completely bonkers. But from a, as a television spectacle, as Paddy um, predicted last week, it did look amazing. I mean, the opening ceremony was all lights and glamour and uh, yep. the future Mrs. Callahan, otherwise known as Kylie Minogue, um, performing because <laughs> uh, she has a residency act at Las Vegas at the moment. Um, but yeah, so very, very impressive. But actually, from a sporting perspective, uh, plus ça change, plus ça même shows. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Verstappen won, Leclerc second, Perez third. He did come from being fifth, didn't he, at one stage for Staffan? Yeah, he's not, yeah, he's he's not used to that. Had a few problems in qualifying, which had knocked him down the grid to fifth. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you know, I think it just shows the talent of the man and also the, the the great car he's got. And I'm not saying it's one or t'other, but when you put a really a driver that is well ahead of the other drivers in a car that is well ahead of the other drivers, lo and behold, you've got a man who's finishing the season miles ahead of any of the other drivers. 
Okay. Um, now, it, it costs money for us to have sound effects on Null and Void, but I'm now going to... A round of applause, a round of applause, yeah. Look at that, no expense spared on that no uh, sound effect. You can, you can tell that. Um, you've been accepted for a race next year. Tell us all about it. I can't believe yes. it. Having had repeated kicks in the ballots over the years <laughs> and a number of, I think I'm on 17 consecutive knockbacks from the London Marathon, um, I actually got in at the second round of drawing and the public ballot for the Escape from Alcatraz triathlon next summer. So they'd done the initial draw in October, and lo and behold, I was unsuccessful. But then the people who had been successful in that draw have a couple of weeks to get their registration in and paid for and everything like that. And any that don't, they then open it up again, and whatever's left of the 2,000 spots in the race... Um, for which I think there was something like uh, 80, 90,000 applicants, um, those spots get reopened. And I was lucky enough to get one of them. So, yeah, next yeah. summer I will be out in San Francisco, um, in San Francisco Bay, being early in the morning, dumped off the back of a ferry in the shadow of Alcatraz Island. And it's then, um, because the Americans do it all in miles, a mile and a half swim in the bay, then a half mile run up the beach to my bike, 19 miles on the bike, which is a very, um, according to friend of the show and uh, Ironman triathlete, Lee Spore, um, who's looked at this race a number of times, a very bumpy race, which I think uh, Lee says bumpy, but for me, that probably means very hilly. Hills. Um, and yeah. then finished with an eight mile run. So Good. yeah, it's going to be an amazing experience. I've always wanted to go to Alcatraz. I hadn't thought I'd be seeing it in this way, but uh, what a way to do it. Yeah. So um, 10 days, I've already booked my accommodation and I definitely got my registration fee in quick, smart. Um, and I'll be heading out next summer for uh, a week and taking part in the race in early June. And you know what this means, don't you? You've actually got to do some work now. You've got to work in your training. Oh, bugger, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, that brings the different sports to an end, but uh, move on to contacts. And You know we love, on Null and Void, to say this is a first. You've never heard this before. Mike Dinsdale, remember that name? He's, on so many occasions, recruited people as guests on the station, and he harangues them to the point where they... They say, yeah, 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 okay, okay. But he we, has we got... even have a phrase for it, don't we? We call it yeah, being dinsdaled. Being dinsdaled. But he's very good at it, and he's come up mm. with some superb guests. Well, here's a first for even Mike. Last week, and this is not a good part for him, he was uh, he, he was suffering. He was quite ill, actually. Uh, and he was in the uh, hospital, Townlands Hospital at Henley, and cell with cellulitis, which actually is quite serious because it can develop into sepsis and so on and, and obviously kill you. It's to the extent that he had four days booked with an IV link to, to get him back to health. But it was every day for four days at Towner's Hospital. And you think, so where's the first in all of this for Nolan Lloyd? Well, whilst Mike was there, of course, he's talking to everybody, as he does. 
and he's actually recruited one of the nurses who is in her sporting guise uh, a Henley mermaid and they do all sorts of sporting things including swimming um, and he managed to recruit her whilst on an IV uh, line into his arm and I think that has to definitely go down as a first <laughs> incredible really I think that also goes down as um, commitment above and beyond the call of duty. That's that's just, phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> just 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 a little bit. But uh, anyway, yeah. Well done, Mike, and and I know you are recovering, but um, great stuff. And we'll obviously hear more about your <laughs> recruitment of a speaker from that occasion. Quite unusual, though. I think it's fair to say. Mm. Another contact I had from Simon Carlard, who sent me a note welcoming me back but also asked if I had done any running there or, or was it just too hot? Uh, well, Simon, providing uh, you got out early-ish, say before eight o'clock, the heat was manageable. I ran most days and no great distances, to be honest, but it's very hilly there in Perth. So quite great benefit. And we were walking the dogs on a daily basis. So I did manage to keep fit. But at times, even in... November, and I say that because it gets warm in December and January. Uh, it, it got pretty hot at times, mid-30s. Okay, so thanks, Simon. So you've got uh, another contact from last week, haven't you? Yeah, well, not a contact as such, but last week we had a fantastic guest on, and if anyone's not listened to last week's episode yet, I would really encourage you to do so. Um, superb, been... absolutely superb. Yeah. It really was. And Victoria Monk from the There She Rose team, which are four women who are rowing across the Atlantic as part of the um, Atlantic race to raise awareness and raise funds for um, the whole aim of getting girls and women back into sports. Um, brilliant guest, really interesting and engaging, all the things she talked about. But where Null and Void leads, others follow, because Victoria joined us on Tuesday um, did the recorded the interview and it went out after editing by our team on Thursday. Well, at the weekend, uh, the Telegraph had a big article about the team, the There She Rose team, really good article, but asking a lot of the questions that we at Null and Void had already asked and that Victoria had already answered. I'm going to claim that, that we had our story out yes. there two, three days before the uh, Telegraph did so. Um, but if anyone hasn't listened to the episode, fantastic episode. And if anyone hasn't read the article in the Tory graph, then it is a really good article as well. So between the two of them um, shows what a great team that the There She Rose team are and what a fantastic and humongous challenge they are undertaking. Yeah. No, it was a brilliant interview. Well done on that. And actually, while I'm talking about well done, before we talk about the Australian experience, just to say to you and to uh, Paddy Malarkey uh, for doing such a great job while I was away. Um, and what not everybody will know is that Andy, the technical side of Null and Void is all down to him in terms of the editing um, and all was done by Andy. Uh, nobody would allow me anywhere near it, to be honest. But... Uh, great that, a job that you did over those three weeks pulling it all together. So uh, well done, mate. Thank you. Thank you. And in, in fairness, Tony, I mean, I'm I'm not that much more advanced on the technical side. I think um, 
our IT team have told me that if I break one more laptop, then they get me an Etch-a-Sketch instead. <laughs> um, I mean, two of them weren't my fault, I am going to say. But, uh, but, but yeah, um, I think in our case, it, it, the old adage of in the kingdom of the blind, the man with one eye is king certainly comes to mind. Comes, comes to mind, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, should we talk about the Oz thing? Yeah, the experience? Yeah. Just for yeah, a few minutes. It's, it's, it's all about you and your holiday, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't got a guess, so we, we, you know, we just thought we'd re relate some of that. I mean, I really love uh, the Australians' passion for sport. I mean, you may have a whole series of questions, Andy, but one of the things that I liked about it, because that was like null and void, they are passionate about sport. Plus, they're annoyingly good at it. But it's superb countryside, and Perth is what I would call a big city with very few people in it. I mean, the population of Perth is just over two million currently. But it, well, it, isn't it, it the most remote city anywhere yes. in the world because it's so far from everything else, which is almost a lot of Australia is lopsided to the east coast, isn't it? Whereas Perth yes. is right over. Yeah, the massive the, differences. Yeah, mass, mass, massive distances. But anyway, yeah, superb countryside, clean, spacious. And when compared to London and Manchester, massive, you know, because these days they're so crushy, those places. And Perth just isn't. And lots of sporting facilities from local area to local area. So lots of things struck me. But was there any particular questions you had for me? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first one links to that and... Obviously, you've said they are complete sports nuts. Yeah. Um, but in terms of then the coverage, you know, here we get wall-to-wall -wall coverage with all of the different providers and all of the different uh, paywalls that, you know, you need to seem to take out about 20 different subscriptions to get the sort of sports coverage that you and I um, yeah. need to get our fix, if you like. But while you were out there during two major events, the Cricket World Cup, and also the horse racing, the Melbourne Cup. And so yeah. what's the sports coverage like on TV over there? Well, it, it, it's pretty comprehensive, to be honest. I mean, you know, but again, they have a, a number of big providers, Optus being one of the major ones. Mm. Um, and you can, and people do, like our guest from uh, the other week, Ben, um, he has a subscription with Optus so he can watch his favourite team, Charlton Athletic, playing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. He, that's probably a bit extreme. But it means he can watch Premier Football, Premier League Football, or the highlights of or whatever. So you've got that. You've got uh, Australian rules, obviously. Well, it's their close season at the moment, so that's a bit mm. low profile. But, yeah, the, the, um, the, the horse racing, that's a major event, a bit like our sort of Grand National in a way. And every, that's a massive sporting social occasion mm. and uh one of fran's friends there was getting together to go with a whole group of girls to watch it and she was trying to get fran to babysit her two children because <laughs> she wanted to get absolutely blethered you know? as and, it was fran was babysitting her two parents <laughs> and actually, that was very near to the truth of what happened in terms of what fran said you know I've got to look after them. But 
when I'm saying about these sporting occasions, they take them very seriously and they are big social events as well. And, you know, they will, what I was going to say struck me was when you watch people watching sport, be it on TV or other, they really use it as an occasion to, to knock them back a few. And they're pretty good at that, watching them in the restaurants and the pubs, pretty good <laughs> at that. And and actually, the size of some of these people with the high-vis jackets, you wouldn't actually say anything bad to them at all. But one of the things you will like, Andy, is that um, the food portions sizes are massive in Australia. They're really, you, you know, you, you've been there, I know, but they yeah. they know how to do it. Definitely. Did you try the famous Australian meat pie floater? Well, yeah. Sue likes meat pies and she had a couple and they were, I've never seen such a big pie. I mean, a serious, serious pie. Yeah. I remember the first time uh, myself and my then girlfriend, uh, Vicky, went out to Oz and it was just after I'd finished uni and we were going to do the whole backpacker thing for for three, four months. And on the flight out, there was this Aussie guy sat in the row behind us. And he was obviously trying to chat up the last sat next to him. And he was going on and on. About, ah, you've got to try the world famous Australian four and 20 meat pies. This is the only brand that you should be trying. Well, we looked high and low. Could we find a bleeding four and 20 meat <laughs> pie? <laughs> if, anyway, I mean, we traveled up the whole up and down the East Coast, uh, not in search of a meat pie, I hasten to add. But whilst we were doing that trip, looking out for them so yeah you know the aussies uh their food and of course a lot of it is it's fresh from the water fresh from the farm uh that was the thing that really struck me you know whereas our food covers a number of uh food miles before getting there you know you've got the seafood places the restaurants and it's all pretty much fresh off the farm fresh out of the uh, sea yeah. so yeah absolutely amazing i guess uh you touched on the fact that you would kept up your training whilst you were out there yeah did you feel or was that affected in any way by jet lag or the impact of jet lag on your training and how the training felt it didn't feel as if it was going out there because i think the effects are much greater coming from east to west oh wow because i always struggle more going west to east all right well it's so far that I mean, obviously you're tired, uh, but even on the day I got there, um, I went out for a trot round then because I've 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 done that all through my career, you know, wherever I've got to to get that sort of in my legs early on, mm. and to to normalise things. And um, interestingly, the very first morning we went for a walk. This is a a wildlife story. Um, we went down the very steep hill uh, from my daughter's house onto this local playing field. And there are swings and roundabouts and so on at the top end. It's an, an area for or, or dogs, an open area for dogs. Anyway, we, we're walking with the two dogs. And in the distance across this field, there was a bit of a kerfuffle going on. And there were the big magpies who make an awful lot more noise than they do here. Um we're jumping up and down and um fran who's pretty sharp on it said what's going on there she said it's a snake and it turned out to be a dugite and a dugite is one of the world's most venomous snakes 
and it was on this playing field. And and France said it's really unusual because they're normally near water because that's what they want. But the magpies were sort of playing around with it. And you could see this thing switching around. It's probably a couple of meters size. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. And that was the first morning. You think, wow. And in the fields we went <laughs> up into, the woods we went up into, you would regularly see kangaroos. You'd see big lizards and so on. So you have to be sharp about your feet as well. Uh, I mean, the snake thing was unusual and it being such a venomous snake as well. So there was some reason it was there. We don't quite know why. And it soon skittered off. And also when you see the speed of its movement, you think, oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So not wanting to take that one on. Yeah. But it's another aspect of the, the life there. You just have to say, well, okay, if that's the way it is, I'll have to take a little more care in certain situations. But most of the snakes don't attack you. They go away from you. They, yeah. you know, obviously they look for food and you're not it as such. So, so yeah, they feel threatened, it, isn't it? That they'll, uh, it, it, they'll absolutely attack. correct. And sometimes that's because you just stumble upon them literally. But uh, yeah, I mean, happy to go back there again. Second time round, what was happening was you start to geographically start to things slot into place. You, you think, mm. ah, we've been here before. I didn't realize you came through that road. So that was good, and we we liked the local cafes, and yeah, so a very laid back lifestyle. Mm. And maybe that's Perth and not the East Coast, but definitely Perth has that, and we liked it. I mean, I I can't speak for Perth. I, I've never been out to the to the west, but certainly the East Coast. I've you know I've been there three four times, and I felt the same. Yes, I think probably their bigger cities was like Sydney, Brisbane. Uh, but much more laid back than big cities in the UK. So I'd, I'd agree with you there. I guess last question. We know that the paddle boarding, unfortunately, had to be postponed yeah. due to the uh, bushfires and the, the road in and out being a risk. But did you try any other new sports whilst you were there? Well, I, I, I sent you a picture of me on a bodyboard. Uh, and, and actually, Fran very cruelly did a video which I thought was absolutely hilarious. I've never seen anybody look so terrified. And it was in their pool, which is a confined pool. It wasn't a big, uh, but that which they've had built and constructed since we, well, literally while we were there. Uh, so I thought I'd have a go at this bodyboard because I couldn't paddleboard. But I mean, talk about inept, didn't come into it. But I did, I did have a go at that. And I, you know, I'd love to have a go at the paddleboarding thing. In fact, I saw a documentary with, Bill Bailey, who's out in Australia with the series he's doing at the moment, the comedian. And he got on a paddleboard and he, he said, I bet you thought I was going to fall off. He didn't. <laughs> he looked serene. And I'm thinking, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, so uh, well, we'll see. everyone I know makes it look easy. And I couldn't even stand up on the bleeding thing when I tried no, it. Well, uh, I, I, I think it's reading. No, I, and I, I, fear for myself on it but i i wanted fran and wade to be there and and there is a serious point about the bushfire thing there mm. nobody mucks about with it you do as you're told and there was only one road in and out of the lake that we were going to go to so it was unfortunate but there'll be other opportunities but i'm sure i will be just as inept on a paddleboard as i was on a bodyboard well i, I think you did yourself a disservice and you actually made it harder for yourself being in a pool 
Um, I know that was the only option yeah. to try it, but uh, yeah, you know, usually bodyboarding is easier when you've got a wave behind you. Yeah, you can and you've like, carried, you've carried yeah. along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas you were trying to do that all with your leg kick. It was almost like watching someone holding a holding a float, you know, when they're doing the kicking in well, their you, swimming you, drill. You're, gi- you're giving me a good excuse for being a complete pillar. But anyway, <laughs> that's some more from The Wizard of Oz, hopefully next year. Um but this, that concludes this episode. Great to be back with you. And join us at a time and a place that suits you. But ah, next week, we're having a week off. It's about time Andy got a chance to relax while I've been away. Where are you going to? Off to Madeira. Um, I've heard the wine there is very good. And I've also heard they do cake. So wine and cake <laughs> sounds right up my street for a week. Well, <laughs> you enjoy that. Have a good break. And so we'll see you in a couple of weeks at a time and a place that obviously suits you because this suits us very much. We love having you with us. See you later. Bye. Cheerio, folks. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.